Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen Dutrolio Coakley. Today, we bring you a conversation between Kay Gara-Smith and Oscar Garcia Johnson on the topic of transoccidentalism. For more information about today's talk, go to htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Kay Higuera-Smith. I am a professor of biblical and religious studies at Azusa Pacific University. And I'm very excited today to speak with Oscar Garcia Johnson. Oscar, can you introduce yourself to us? I'm the assistant provost for the center of the study of Hispanic uh, church and community at Fuller Theological Seminary and Associate Professor of uh, Theology and Latinx Studies. And it's a great privilege to be here, sharing this time with you, Kay, and with uh, uh, several people that will listen to us and interact with us in one way or another. It should be a good talk. Uh, we're here today to discuss your book, Spirit Outside the Gate, Decolonial Pneumatologies of the American Global South, published by University Press, are academic. I've read the book. I love the book. It has me full of questions. And in fact, we won't have time to deal with all my questions in this setting. But hopefully we'll be able to have a good conversation about it. Um, the first thing I want to ask you is uh, who this book is is written for? Well, um, let me begin with the um, decision to publish this book in InterVarsity Press Academic versus a University Press. The book is built in a language, as, as you read it, that it's very high in, in concepts and theoretical uh, you know, aspects of, of knowledge and though it would probably qualify fairly easy for a university press. Yet, um, I was in interaction with some friends that convinced me that if I wanted to contribute to the, to the transformation of the, of the paradigmatic aspects of theology and, and missiology and even ministry, it will be important to expose my ideas in an environment in which, broadly speaking, the evangelical, uh, you know, community and, and uh, lay leaders, informed lay leaders, you know, educated lay leaders can have access to. And so that's why InterVarsity Press, uh, you know, uh, academic was, was uh, a place where I wanted to do that. So um, the book, uh, is written with certain audiences in mind. Uh, it's a conversation, I would say an internal conversation with, um, you know, the Latinx diaspora, with the uh, populations of the uh, Global South, the American Global South, which is a, a term that I have coined in this book to refer to to uh, 
to uh, you know people that are thinking, believing, acting, uh, and and resisting in the in the in the social location of Latin America and all the middle places that we don't usually see. And I would say people that are really wanting to have another way to approach in the church, to approach in theology, to approach in uh, the public space. And they, they're, they're thirsty for uh, a different paradigm, you know, that in a way provides alternative um, um, ways to, to think and to act and to believe and to even to speak uh, into issues of power, race, and privilege. So that is, you know, those are the the interlocutors that I, um, you know, that I have in mind when I'm writing this book. It's not written to the to the uh, guilt located in the West, merely speaking, and they want to simply have another extra, so to speak, uh, aspect of Western theology. It's, that's not the, you know, the... Um, the target, although I hope I am speaking with the West, but not necessarily only to the West, but uh, with a whole bunch of other communities that have been traditionally um, not represented in the, you know, in the, I would say, in the discourse of theology, ministry, and, and missions. So you, you uh, talk about a different paradigm, and, um, and yet, I noticed when I read your book that you use what I will call as a technical term, mm -hmm. some very highfalutin language. <laughs> so uh, how is it that people who are in the global south, who are not necessarily the Euro-Anglo-European theological elites, how are they going to uh, be able to access that book? And, and tell us about your thinking in terms of the voice that you took on in writing the book. Muy bien, buena pregunta. I think, um, uh, I think we, have to, we have to be in multiple spaces at the same time. Um, the task of of the people of the South, so to speak, if I use Boaventura de Sousa Santos, you know, uh, approach to the people of the South, and the South is not just a geography, it's, it's a location of um, uh, where you um, have limitations because the North has the power, the North has the language, the North has the structure, the North has the money, the, the North has a lot of things. So the South is that displaced, you know, community. When we're, when we're speaking from the South, uh, I think we are forced to speak the canonical language, meaning that the language of, of, of theories, the language of ideas, the, the language of categorizations, and speak to power structures and speak to power ideologies, you, you're forced to somehow, I would say, penetrate and travel through the um, through the conduits of that language. But the, I think what I'm trying to do is to clearly define from where I'm doing that and that I bring with me who I am and I am part of El Pueblo. Yo soy El Pueblo, parte del Pueblo. I'm not the whole Pueblo, but I have a story. And I believe my story has a grounding in the story of many other people. And with me and with 
with my own people. Uh, I'm not trying to speak for them. And I'm trying to bring with, with me the story of many, many people. Let's begin with the fact that I am Hondurans. And <laughs> Hondurans are the minority of the minority, the displays of the displays in many, many ways. I mean, you have the South American discourse, you know, that is pretty powerful. You have the, the Mexican discourse that is pretty powerful sometimes, and the Caribbean discourse. But then where are the Hondurans? You know, we're on, even Salvador has, you know, with Sobrina and others located. But where are the Hondurans? So even that, that particular location speaks of the, of the minority among the minority, or the minorities, I mean, the minority. And from there, I'm trying to say, well, number one, we have a stories to say. We're connected with other stories. And this is part of a global design that we have, uh, you know, we are participating and that we need to speak in a way that somehow disrupt the traditional ways of representing, you know, the, 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 you know, the peoples at the margins and the people of the South from discourses in the West. So in, in that sense, what I'm trying to say is that we have to, uh, we have to, um, we have to speak that, learn to speak the grammar and the language of, of, of that elite and guilt, you know, but at the same time, we have to be located with the people, con el pueblo. So we have to be everywhere and at the same time be able to travel. And how these theories are part of our living experiences, lo cotidiano, uh, I think that's what I try to do. And, and in this book, is, is built in that way. And, and I have stories to tell you how I have this, I mean, how this theoretical, uh, you know, uh, landscape that I have built informed my practices in the most simple and cotidiano uh, you know aspects of life uh, I think that's my whole uh, attempt so what you're saying is that you're coming from a place of being minoritized being uh, in some sense uh, from a people who really haven't had a significant voice on the global stage and you're speaking truth to power yes and and let me even go further with that. My whole idea is not to validate the minoritized discourse by speaking the language of the powerful. That's, that's not my whole agenda. What I'm trying to do is to say, we have something to say. We have something to yes. contribute. We can sit at the table. We can speak. And I hope to change the terms of the conversation by being there and by saying, yes, I have to create. I mean, I've been... You know, if you read my book, I, um, one of my tactics, so to speak, is to create language. <laughs> I create terms. I create categories. I, re I recategorize and I reclassify a lot of them. That's part of my tactic. And in a way, it's to take the, the, the dominant and normative language out of its own niche and bring it into, into another uh, form of operation, so to speak. And, and so, yeah, that's theorization and that's very technical, but it's a different technicality and it's a different language that, that, is, not, that is not any longer in the hands of, uh, uh, you know, majoritized population. So it's kind of a tactic. And that also it disrupts the, 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 the whole, the whole uh, I would say, uh, power dynamic of language and representation. And at the same time, forces people to say, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? And then it, it brings the, 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 the need to, to investigate, 
to research what am I trying to say? And then you have to go all the way to the people, to the very everyday experiences of the people to say, oh, that's what you mean. Oh, that's exciting. In your book, you have uh, a word that I hadn't heard before. That word is transoccidentalism. What does it mean? Yeah, well, that's a, you have to read the book to, <laughs> to try to even even ask the question. Well, um, I I tell you how the the came the 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 word came. Um, I was writing a book with another uh, colleague. He was he's a he's an Anglo-American colleague, and we were writing a book called Theology Without Borders. So I said, "How can I, how can I authentically and legitimately represent my voice and the voice of people like me in a conversation with the with the North, North Atlantic, with the West, in a way that I'm not buying into." the dialectics of the West, but I am, on the one hand, self-representing, and on the other hand, self-theologizing. And I was, I was struggling with that, and two, I would say, uh, there were three factors um, that, that uh, hit me. One of them was the, the, I would say, the memorable essay of Jose Martí, Nuestra América, Our America, that essay written in 1891 in New York, Trying to speak of a, of a, uh, you know, of the of an identity, of a political identity, of a cultural identity, of a whole continent, saying, um, you know, speaking that we have, we have kind of, um, yes, achieved some political independence, but the, the intellectual independence we haven't achieved, the geographical independence we haven't. So there's a lot of things. So ah. Uh, our America is yet to be born. It's not there. It's not ours. It's somebody else's America. It was Mignolo will say later. It was mapped. It was it was it was invented. It was pretty much uh, designed in, on, on another basis. But that hit me is to say, you know, um, uh, what is what is the the kind of uh, the kind of uh, uh, image that we have the geo geopolitical image that we have. As a citizen of the America, if the Americas of the Americans of the South, let me speak that Americans of the South, like Simon Bolivar and his uh, Boli, uh, Bolivariano, su idea bolivariana, and and Jose Marti, uh, you know, the sense of of land, the land will teach you what you need to 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 lead that land. The peoples will teach you know. The connection to the to the people of the land, I think that begins began to uh, hit me. Another aspect that began to hit me too is uh, reading uh, well, uh, um, Enrique Dussel and his idea of of trans uh, modernity, and then I was reading also um, Retamar, who is a literary critic of from Cuba, who was talking about post occidentalism. So all that came together, and. Um, along with Edward Said, you know, in his book, Orientalism, I asked myself, what would it take, I mean, for somebody from the, from the uh, peoples of the American Global South to self-imagine as a person that is decolonized, as a person that is, uh, you know, uh, part of a new 
uh, another world is possible. Like in the Zapatista dictum, a world in which many worlds fit. It's a different conception of who. What would it take? What kind of, what kind of, uh, you know, um, epistemic? We call it epistemology. I mean, ways of uh, knowing ourselves, getting to know ourselves, getting to know our people, getting to know our, our history, will take us to imagine ourselves as people not defined by, uh, you know, um, by, I would say, uh, the West or defined by the stories that are not necessarily all the stories that define us. You use the term social imagination yes. in your book. Yes. So it's a, it's a social imagination that imagines otherwise from how the Anglo-European uh, social imagination gets constructed. Would that be fair? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think the the word has been highly highly you know worked with by Charles Taylor in his social imagination. I think uh, I th I like the the, the, the idea. Um, I like more the the uh, to speak of imaginaries, uh, social imaginations, which are in a way. Uh, um, our our, how can I say it in a way that doesn't still I mean, try to break that technicality? It, there are uh, elements that somehow register the ambiguity of who we are as a people. You know, the conquest, the many, the many, the many traditions that have formed our identities, um, the the um, mestizajes. Um, uh, that have built who we are and who we're, who we're not. Uh, the border, and I know we, you know, I use the border, you know, the border ways of defining ourselves um, in, in, I would say, in the, in the, in the, in the social, um, you know, in, the so, in social locations. Um, I think we have social, I mean, social imaginaries that are very, uh, hours, so to speak, and that is part. I think what Jose Marti was trying to appeal to when he was in Nuestra America is not a land that is already made. Is what we're building together with the with the history marked by conquest, by the history marked with violence, but above all with the history marked with hope and resistance. I think it is the building. It is you. You might call it a utopia. You might call it a, a eschatology, whatever you want to call it. But, but I would say is that social imaginary that is not something of the past. It is a building, uh, you know, uh, it is a building uh, uh, exercise, so to speak. It's, it's, it's an experiment. And how can we begin to, uh, to, in, uh, to, in, to inhabit a place where we can be many things and many people and yet be be called Americans. But I think it is a geography too. Yes. Um, I know one thing that's always bothered me about the terms Occident and mm -hmm. Orient is that we live on a sphere. Yeah. <laughs> and when you live on a sphere, what is Occident? What is Orient? Mm -hmm. I mean, what's, what's West to you is East to me, Absolutely. and what's East to you is West to me. So those terms by themselves end up causing whole whole 
continents to disappear. Mm -hmm. When you're using the categories Occident and Orient, where does South America fit into that? Um, I think the the use of trans-Occidentalism, as I said, it's an exercise of self-representation and it's imagining ourselves as people that have been for five centuries um, defined and represented by the logic of the West as people that have the freedom, the courage uh, to imagine our histories to recover our histories and to build on the knowledge even of our ancestral you know wisdoms as well as whatever we think it is important from the west and the rest from other people in other continents to say these are elements that we really need to to even give meaning to whatever we're becoming um a transoccidentalism is um a call to uh, freedom, to really uh, exercise autonomy, to really exercise uh, dignity, and to really not buy into the, as you said, the geopolitics and the body politics of power. But to say, you know, there have been a lot of uh, a lot of experiments of the West on us. Well, this is our own experiment. This is a this is an experiment of self-imagination, and we might have it wrong. I mean, <laughs> at some point, but it's ours. I think uh, um, um, Jose Martis has a saying, and in, I'm going to say it in Spanish. Dijo, nosotros um, hacemos también vino. <laughs> I'm going to par- paraphrase it. Uh, y aunque nuestro vino sea agrio, es nuestro vino. So uh, you know, we might not have the <laughs> the same products with the same, uh, um, I would say, pretension of, of rational, um, I would say, purity, so to speak, things that I, I question. But, it's, but these are our own experiments and might be our own mistakes. Uh, and those are important in the making of a people mm-hmm. and the making of our own knowledges and the making of our own theologies and, and intellectual uh, traditions. You discuss in your book, Pneumatology. Uh, In fact, the subtitle of your book is Decolonial Pneumatologies of the American Global South. How does that work? Mm. What what is a decolonial pneumatology? Maybe first define pneumatology. Uh, What is a decolonial pneumatology of the American Global South? Well, okay, I, um, think that with, uh, the history of Christian theology in the Americas has, has been heavily defined by Christology. And I write in my chapter, chapter seven, I write that the uh, colonial wound as some of uh, you know, the, the colonial thinkers call it, has been really, um, um, I would say, promoted and uh, uh, built on the 
the idea that the Christ and that God and that uh, the God of life somehow came from Europe to the Americas. And I, I wonder if he came with Christopher Columbus. I mean, that's the idea, <laughs> right? I mean, there's this famous, uh, you know, um, president of uh, Princeton, uh, you know, that wrote the other Spanish Christ, which I was, was criticizing particularly that. And, and, and that with Christ came mission and came life and came Christianity and came somehow the, the God. Um, and, and I might add a notion of hierarchy. Absolutely, absolutely. I question that and I say, um, you know, Christology was the, the wild card of the Christian's missions that came from Europe to say, this is, this is the way you're going to truly know God. And that had several presuppositions. Number one, that God has, God cannot be here, because, in a way, the rituals, the kind of people that uh, some of the uh, you know uh, the theologians that came in, in the 15th century, 16th century, uh, didn't look like European, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, knowledges and and European theologies and European, um, uh, I would say. Um, um, theologians or and, and apologists, um, and I, I think that that's that's part of the whole problem. Uh, that that of it's interesting that for in the Middle Ages you you speak of the omnipresence of God as one of the attributes of God, but that omnipresence of God seems to be working only basically in Europe because when you go to other places there is no omni God is not there. So we came looking for. We, we, we came, when they say we came, I think the West came, uh, um, believing that we, we, were, we were bringing God, and what we found was Satan, was Satan. And so it's interesting that, that all the texts, all the, uh, the chronicles that you have in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, it's, it's, a, it's a registry of, oh, these natives, you know, have certain knowledges, but this not this knowledge is imperfect and it cannot be God. It's, it looks like ours. So it seems to me what I'm finding is that uh, you know that the the, the the that the whole colonial project was built on the presupposition that uh, we need to civilize, we need to uh, we need to educate, and we need to save these poor people that has never had God. What they had is Satan. So. I am uh, trying to uh, look for, for another question. We've been always looking for Satan, but I want to look for God and the places that we've found Satan. So maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but not, mm -hmm. not totally. Jesus came over on the boats, but the word for spirit in Hebrew Ruach is mm -hmm. wind, mm -hmm. and wind doesn't need boats to Absolutely. travel. So the spirit came over with the wind, so to speak. Yeah. Um, the way I use pneumatology, because that the your question is, okay, how you use the pneumatology is more as a as a registry of how um, is God present in the pre-Columbian. Uh, communities of the Americas. Uh, if I ask the question, 
I'm not, I'm, I'm looking for where is God's activity, where is God's presence, where is God's revelation, where is God's manifestation uh, prior to the coming of the Europeans to the Americas. And I asked that question, and then I geared my um, um, uh, methodology to ask that question. I think it changes the presupposition because I'm, um, I'm going to look at rituals, I'm going to look at communities, I'm going to look at uh, the ways in which Christianity, Western Christianity and indigenous faith came together and the synthesis that happened. I don't, I don't call them animism and I don't call them uh, syncretism, I call them synthesis. The mestizologists, I call them, you know, the big term meaning to say the, there is a blending there and yet there is a space of autonomy and, and otherness that was maintained in the social imaginaries of the people of the Americas, the, what I call original Americans. Uh, I think there is the formation of, of, of communities there uh, that are tradition in Christianity. So the question I'm asking is not how Christianity is uh, evangelizing the native. The question I'm asking is how, how are the native tradition in Christianity among themselves in their, in their histories? How are they appropriating? How are they incorporating? How are they simply um, um, saying this, this is not what I want? And uh, that's the question I'm asking. The question I'm asking is in the other side. Uh, and it's a, it's a difficult process because a lot of the uh, a lot of the documents were destroyed, as you know, uh, you know, uh, at, the, at the moment of the uh, colonization, uh, colonial rule. But I think the, the, the question is valid, and we have living archives, communities that are still today practicing, you know, indigenous Pentecostalities, indigenous, uh, you know, uh, uh, Catholicisms, uh, and all, all is plural here. And I think we need to create a... Um, a mechanism to map those, uh, you know, those specialities and those, 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 uh, you know, I would say experiences. That's what I'm looking after. That I call new, uh, the colonial pneumatology. Number one, the acknowledgement that the spirit of God, which to me the spirit is a much more um, um, clear agent, uh, divine agent, with when it comes to the land. And Christ and the Christology is always being part of a of a construct of a social construct that you know it has on a specific individual, <laughs> and it's that's a, that's an individual. It's based on the on the narrative of Jesus Christ as we see it in the Gospels, and that and how it is received and transmitted. The Spirit is doesn't have necessarily that gender component. It doesn't have necessarily that. Uh, individualistic is is difficult to individualize, and yet it's it's um, even the word persona it's complicated, you know. Uh, but but it it's a divine agent, so to speak, that brings together the divine community, if I made, um, and creates uh, um, I would say an experience that is communal experience, the communal experience of God. So the land, Pachamama, uh, the land, the people, and God have a kind of a covenantal relationship of life. So every, you know, that covenantal relationship of life is what I am calling uh, decolonial pneumatology because I'm not, I'm not um, using the economy of, 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 of 
of God as we've inherited from the, from the West. I want to flesh out a little bit more this idea of looking differently. Mm-hmm. So in your book, you want us to look for God in places where in the past we only looked for Satan. Mm-hmm. And that is in itself a really striking statement because it kind of draws us up short where we realize, wow, that's true. In our Anglo-European uh, social imaginary, we, we have no problem assuming that evil forces are all over the world, but somehow we can't imagine God being all over the world. Correct. Why are we thinking that way? And what are some, I mean, you've already given some examples in, in, in other contexts, but what are some ways that this can really be um, exemplified? Yeah, um, I guess, let me see if I, I can uh, more concretely uh, interact with your question here. I mean, I target three different communities as communities that I call traditioning communities that uh, we need, we, I would like to ask that question, where is, where is being God active in your memories, in your lives, and in your trajectory as peoples of the Americas, so to speak, of the American Global South? And that, that by looking at that, you can contribute to uh, a wealth of knowledge, hopefully ancestral knowledge or contemporary knowledge, to um, you know, fertilize our uh, Christian imagination from a different place, and I, I target the the indigenous the uh, indigenous American communities. I I target the Afro descendant communities, and then uh, more recently uh, the uh, immigrants of the South, particularly women, uh, you know, migrating in places and carrying with them their faith, their local faith, their local religion with them through the trajectory all the way through through the borders, multiple borders that they have to cross. Some of them are very material. Some of them are very symbolic and have to cross multiple borders. And once they're here, the border is not done. You continue to to walk through borders. Um, I think um, uh, concrete examples are, for example, what we've um, um, called sometimes uh, for example, people have issues with when we speak about Santeria, La Santa, Muer- La Santa Muerte. Uh, people uh, have issues uh, when uh, we go to uh, forms of uh, religious, um, you know, experiences that are does not conform to Western normativity and Western Christianity as we have imagined it in the West, what I call the canonical imagination of the West. So we have a way to read the Bible in the West, that, that we uh, um, uh, use that readings of the Bible, of the canon, so to speak, to gate knowledge, to give it logocentrism, particular meaning, in accordance to our local experience. So we have a hyper-local, European form of reading the Bible that in a way makes the canon uh, sealed boxed uh, deposito de la fe that is pretty much sealed it's done there's, there's nothing else you don't even think anymore I mean um, 
I think that is that is one of the big problems because if God is God, he cannot be boxed that easy. Uh, if God is God, the canon, the readings are um, are not limited. You will continue to read uh, the Bible and from multiple locations, and from you will continue to find many, 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 many. Uh, I would say forms of knowledge. In that sense. Um, what you might, what some people might find as very, um, I would say, uh, blasphemous in in practices from the indigenous communities, I might find as places of engagement between God and that community uh, that might not necessarily be that specific in the in the in the Hebrew Bible or in the Bible written in Koine, but that we can find if we have access to this Bible form, you know, places that will be very similar if we're looking for it. So I think it's it's how we read the Bible part of the issue. And you are a biblical scholar, so Well this task of of first beginning to ask ourselves as communities and specifically as communities of faith or communities of practice, um, what are some ways that we have internalized Anglo-European social imaginaries and how we interpret the Bible and the questions that we bring to the Bible um, in what we imagine as possible in understanding the Bible? We've been so socialized to ask certain questions that are Anglo-European um, clerics have have guided us in but if we begin to take up your challenge mm-hmm. and i mean at the at the church level among sure. people regular sure. folks in the pew sitting around uh, a living room or sitting around a sitting room and talking about what does it mean that we are reading the bible yeah. from this place and at this time and in this geographical space that's exciting work to me. Uh, let me put it like, try to be very clear and concrete here. Si en mi iglesia hay personas que son de Chiapas o Oaxaca, you know, they're from places, uh, the highly indigenous communities, and part of my church is composed of people that speak Zapoteco, <laughs> Mayalt, or Aymaras. And my task as a pastor is to convert them into Christianity. I have a big issue with that. I mean, I think what I'm trying to say in this book and in my work is, why don't we start asking, where has God been in this culture and in this, you know, memory? And, and you know, it's not a matter of converting into my Western social imaginary or what I call the canonical imagination. It is a matter of trying to find where is God being you know, active. What is God giving you? So I've, I think we need to be evangelized, if I may, by this indigenous community. What God has been doing there. I think that's part of the, 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 the. the I don't know the task. I'm pro- probably I'm so evangelical that I'm looking for the gospel everywhere. But what's so great about that is that then we have to be asking the abuelitas ah, claro. what's happening in the kitchen ah, claro what's sí. happening in in the in the in the in the yard what's happening in the garden we we move it beyond the professional uh, clerics into 
the household, the ranch, the home, the the uh, the, the the countryside into where people live, and that's the most powerful part of it. Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. This has been a really stimulating conversation. It's made me think about so many ways we as a community and as communities can begin to use this book really as a jumping off point to explore new social imaginaries. Gracias. It's been a pleasure. I mean, this is como parte de la comunidad. It's a, you know, it's it's a collaborative effort. It's Teología en Conjunto, and it's there. Uh, we're thinking together. We're, uh, pienso que la tarea it's to sometimes you have to do the whole thing again it doesn't mean to waste anything that we've inherited but it means to review it and 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 and, and embed it in ways that are i would say more authentic to who we are and who we're becoming thank you gracias oscar The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides these podcasts as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.